The Sunday Baroque podcast is made possible by WSHU and the Friends of Sunday Baroque. You can find out more about the Friends of Sunday Baroque and find out how to become one yourself by visiting our website, sundaybaroque.org, under the Contact tab. Jeanette Sorrell is a Grammy-winning conductor and keyboard player and founder of Apollo's Fire, the period instrument ensemble in Cleveland. Jeanette Sorrell and her group have a 2021 recording collaboration with Spanish violinist Francisco Fuyana, playing Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons concertos and other works. It is so nice to speak with you again. Oh, it's lovely to speak with you, Suzanne. So this is Apollo's Fire 30th anniversary season. Congratulations. That's kind of exciting. It, I know it's like really incredible to think that we have been around for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. When I launched the group in 1992, I was thinking that I would do this for a few years until it dies <laughs> and then I would find something else to do. Um, I never expected to still be here. <laughs> well, that that was my next question is, you know, whether you projected ahead to that. So, you know, and you did this really um, as a a personal challenge, really, you know, this was sort of your, your response to some of the stuff you heard from the establishment. And uh, so you really forged a, a path for yourself and to have it endure and thrive and grow in this way is a, is a real accomplishment. So congratulations. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it was, I, I wasn't conscious of, you know, trying to forge like a feminist path. I, I've never been really focused on fighting those kinds of battles. But um, when certain doors were closed, I just was like a mouse in a maze. I just turned the corner and tried it a different way, you know, and that's how I wound up starting Apollo Spire. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you would do differently with the benefit of hindsight, you know, 30 years of hindsight? Oh, wow. Um, I'm sure there's a lot. Um, I mean, one thing is that when I launched Apollo Spire in Cleveland, I had actually never lived in Cleveland. Um, I, I still lived in Oberlin at that point. I had been an Oberlin student. And then I had gone to Europe for a year to study with Gustav Leonhardt, the great harpsichordist. And then I had come back to Oberlin. So Apollo's Fire was kind of launched out of Oberlin into Cleveland. Um, and, you know, starting a, a professional ensemble like that when you don't know anyone in the city and you don't know any of the philanthropists, um, it's it's a little bit crazy. And, and so trying to put together a board, um, a, a successful board took many, many years. And we have such a fantastic board now, but it took much longer to get there than it would have if I had somehow been able to start the group in a city where I knew some of those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you um, do you think like how has your programming philosophy changed? I mean, I'm I'm sure that your musical approach, you know, just the hands on. But, you know, how how has your philosophy, your programming philosophy evolved over all these years? Well, to be honest, I had a 
pretty clear and obsessive vision for the programming philosophy from the beginning. Um, I mean, so when I studied in Europe, it just became really clear to me that what 17th and 18th century composers and music teachers were focused on was this concept of affect, um, the idea that music has the power to move the emotional moods of the listeners, um, and that the role of the performer is to take the listeners through a series of moods. And, and they were very conscious in trying to recreate that emotional power of music that the ancient Greeks supposedly had, you know, based on, on writings, we have these kind of vague reports of, of the ways that music uh, really moved crowds of people in, in ancient Greece. Um, so that's what Baroque music was about. And I really felt that that was being lost even by the period instrument groups um, that were around when I started Apollo's Fire. So, so that's, always been my focus with Apollo's Fire, and it, it still is today. Um, probably what has evolved is that I'm maybe a little more bold and extreme about it. Um, and in fact, this, this new recording of the Four Seasons is an example of that, um, because we've, we played the Four Seasons 30 years ago in our first season, um, but the way we play it now is probably um, you know, just more boldly sculpted and, and the, the storytelling is, um, we're not cautious about it at all. Like, we don't care if people think it's wrong. We're just going to do what we believe in, you know? Yeah. Well, that that was, of course, my next question was, you know, you're, you're, this new recording is being promoted as not your mother's four seasons. And so I, so can you get into the weeds a little bit on like what, what exactly is different about it? Why, why is that? Why is this not your mother's four seasons? <laughs> um, well, um, I'm, I'm glad to say that some, some people who have listened to it, who, who have a lot of experience listening to a lot of recordings have said that they completely agree and that, um, you know, they've heard dozens of Four Seasons recordings and they really did feel that ours was, um, completely a different experience. Um, so I, you know, Vivaldi was telling a very specific story with this music. Um, it's not just kind of scenes of different weather. Um, he was relaying the lives of the contadini, that is the Italian peasants of the 17th and 18th centuries who lived and breathed and celebrated with the changing of the seasons. And in fact, Vivaldi, um, there, there's a story conveyed in the sonnets a little bit that accompanied the music, but but there's much more that he indicated in the score itself, all kinds of indications in the score. Um, and so when you study that, a picture emerges where we meet a particular shepherd boy um, and, and his story continues from one season into the next season. Like you have the same shepherd boy from spring into summer um, and you meet the, the farmers and the peasants who get tipsy during the autumn harvest celebration. Um, and so we really, you know, immerse ourselves in that story. And then we see ourselves as storytellers using music as our tool mm -hmm. um, rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we um, express the different gestures and the different images has nothing to do with bar lines and notes on the page. We're just going for the gesture and the image. Mm. So how and why is your uh, violin collaborator on this project, Francisco Fuyana, how, 
how was he the right person for this? And, and you know, also, how do you know one another and, and what prompted you to, to do this project together? Sure. Yes. Well, I met Francisco Fuyana um, about five years ago when I was guest conducting the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Okay. And at that time, he was the very young concertmaster that week. Um, I think his position was uh, maybe associate concertmaster, but but he was concertmaster that week. And um, we did a, a fairly obscure Baroque program, including music of Rameau and other French Baroque and it's not the kind of repertoire that one would typically do with modern orchestras. Um, and it just went so easily, thanks to Francisco on my left, um, who just completely seemed to um, sense, you know, through watching me, all of these different sty stylistic nuances. Um, and so we kept in touch after that and, um, you know, ended up meeting sometimes when we were both in New York or whatever. And and after that experience, he got pretty serious about um, historical performance. And he put got strings on his Guarneri violin from 1735, um, which is, you know, a violin that's worth millions of dollars. And um, he, he has that violin because he's a major concert soloist and a major international competition winner. Um, and he began, you know, studying manuscripts of Baroque pieces and studying ornamentation and, and even the approach to um, how we play in tune in a historical setting, which is different than the way modern players play in tune. So um, then like two years ago, I needed a, a last minute substitute as a soloist in the Four Seasons for a tour. And so I called Francisco. And that was when things got really cooking. Wow. Wow. Um, you, you've sort of raised a, a, an interesting question that I wanted to probe a little bit because I was going to ask, you know, you, you are or have been affiliated with uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And as you just said, it's, it's, you know, different to play Baroque repertory with a modern orchestra. So how, how is that different? Yeah. Well, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra is a wonderfully flexible ensemble um, and they're really, they do a, a beautiful job with Baroque music. Um, quite a few of them own Baroque bows actually. Oh. Um, so it's always a pleasure working with them. But, um, you know, I would say in my experience as a guest conductor with symphony orchestras, um, things have changed so much in the last 10 years even. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I used to not do much guest conducting because it was so not enjoyable. Mm. Um, you know, doing Baroque music with symphony players, it used to be really bad. Um, and it used to be that they, you know, not only um, played it in such a heavy way, but they also were not interested in learning. But that's really changed. And in the last 10 years, I find almost everywhere I go that um, often the the principal players and, and often the younger players, you know, are so eager to tackle let's really roll up our sleeves and do it fully baroque you know let's go all the way wow. um and sometimes i bring a couple of baroque bows and they're eager to try it and um wow. so it's been really quite enjoyable in the last you know six seven years yeah yeah um so another part of this recording is a really exuberant performance of la folia would you talk a little bit more about that vivaldi's version but also the the um 
you know, the source melody, I guess, if you will. Sure. Yeah. So the source melody we think is from Portugal in the Renaissance. Um, and in, in the name La Folia, you hear the root of the word folly uh, or madness. And so this was a traditional dance like the Pasacalia and the Chacona and the Pasamezzo. These were all kind of like popular um, jam tunes of the late Renaissance, in, especially in Mediterranean countries. And Folia was one of those. So what was distinctive about Folia was that it always got faster and wilder towards the end, um, as if the dancers were mad. And so in, you know, in the Baroque centuries that followed after, after the late Renaissance, many Baroque composers in Europe wrote variations on that theme. And it's a, it's a chord progression and a melodic theme. Um, and so Corelli did and um, C.P.E. Bach, and Gemignani, um, but Vivaldi's was always my favorite. Um, the thing is though, that he wrote it as a trio sonata for two violins and continuo. And Apollo's Fire being a Baroque orchestra, you know, we all wanted to join in the fray. Um, so I arranged it as a concerto grosso. And I did that, oh, probably at least 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and thought we would just play it once in a while. But then what happened was everybody, when we on, when we're on tour, all the presenters started requesting it over and over. And so we ended up memorizing it by accident, wow. pretty much. Um, and now we just go and play it everywhere from memory. And it's always wow. a fun scene. Wow. And how appropriate, because it is a jam tune. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Great. So what what kind of uh, future plans do you have? You're going to make some more recordings with uh, Francisco Fuyana? Yes, I'm sure we will. Um, he is playing 17 concerts with us this season um, as our artist in residence. Um, that's new this year. And um, that includes a lot of the 17 concerts is touring. Um, he'll be playing with us at Carnegie Hall in March. And um, he'll be back with us in April um, when we will perform at Severance Hall in Cleveland, um, a violin concerto by the kind of forgotten uh, French-African composer, Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that composer, um, but yeah, uh, he was known as Le Mozart Noir or the Black Mozart and um, was sort of a contemporary of Mozart and an incredibly fascinating person and amazing violinist and conductor and composer. Mm -hmm. So uh, Francisco will join us to perform one of his concertos. Phenomenal. And that's one great example of uh, what I was going to ask you next, which is, you know, right in this moment in particular, but obviously for a long time in the world of classical music, we've really tried to address underserved communities you know how do we get more young people more people of color people who have not come to classical concerts before how do we get them into our concerts so i'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that i'm so glad you asked that question and it seems like radio people almost never ask me that hmm. um, <laughs> um but it's so important um and i'm i'm quite passionate about it um you might remember Suzanne, that I, when I was a child, I 
my parents didn't have a lot have a lot of money for lessons or a piano so i made myself a paper keyboard and practiced the piano on the paper keyboard mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean about five years ago we launched something in apollo's fire called the community access initiative mm-hmm. um which has several different components but one of them one of them is um we have $12 presto seats, um, which uh, you can just, anybody can get them, but uh, it means you don't know where you're going to sit. You're just going to sit somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, definitely lowers some economic barriers. And then we made our, our children's concerts free. Um, these are weekend family concerts. We made them free. And we also started doing Baroque bistros, which are, um, sort of concerts, programs that lie at the crossroads of art and tradition, uh, interweaving early music and folk music um, in restaurants. Um, Great. Yeah, and that's been really fun. Um, And then uh, end of 2019, we launched phase two of this program, which we call the Mosaic Project. Um, Mosaic as in you have many small pebbles of different colors, right, that together make up a beautiful whole. Um, So the Mosaic Project is specifically about nurturing young musicians of color in classical music and helping them to um, overcome various hurdles and and be successful. And and we kind of stay with these kids for quite a few years and they go through, they start out as, you know, um, in our youth choir and, and then those who take up instruments, you know, we work with them in college and grad school and, and post postgraduate. So um, that's been really, really rewarding to see how that is evolving. Um, And then I, if I can tell you one more thing, um, we just launched a a major residency at a predominantly African-American school system in the South suburbs of Chicago. Hmm. Um, And uh, we are in the schools there in Chicago four days a week, um, teaching beginning strings to the kids. And they are so excited and enthusiastic. And we have like 35 kids that we're working with. Um, And we did a collaborative concert with their choir and dancers a few weeks ago, um, which can be seen on YouTube. And it's pretty fantastic. Oh, what's it called? Um, It's called Side by Side. Side by Um, Side. That's the name of the string program. And it was also the name of the concert. Okay. I will check it out. And we will put a link to that. Wonderful. Wow. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. This is, a, this is a huge and important priority. And uh, if it's not, if you're an arts organization or a classical broadcaster and it's not your priority, then you need to get your priorities straight. <laughs> so, brava. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I have been speaking with conductor and keyboard player Jeanette Sorrell, who is the founder and leader of Apollo's Fire, the Cleveland Baroque Orchestra, about their recording collaboration with violinist Francisco Fuyana, playing Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons Concertos. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susanna. It was really a pleasure to talk with you.